The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 6th, 2020. On this week's show, we're going to talk about when sports are coming back and when they should come back. If you have the answer, please let us know. We would like to know. We'll also interview Don Harper Nelson, the Olympic gold medalist we had on our live show in December. Back then, Don was aiming to make it back to the Olympics in 2020. Now that is on hold, just like everything else. I am here still at home in D.C., holding it together, ready to do this thing. Positive attitude. Got my friend Stefan here. Stefan Fatsis, author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Stefan, we have now hit the milestone, two out of the three of us having birthdays under quarantine. Happy birthday under quarantine. Thanks, Josh. You had to cancel a party. I didn't even get a chance to schedule a party. Yeah, well, I don't know which is worse. And this was before the days of like everyone scheduling Zoom meetings for everyone. So back in the day, in the early days of the coronavirus, when you canceled something, it was really canceled. No virtual configuration or anything. There's just no birthday. Joel, this is going to happen to you. It is most likely, and I'm fine with it because um, the world is bending to my will. I like to be left alone on my birthdays. I like to spend them alone doing exactly what I want to do. So this will be the year that I'm most likely to get what I want. So your birthday wish of staying inside and cleaning your apartment is uh, it's just going to be magical. You're getting carbs too, carbs as well. <laughs> Joel Anderson in Palo Alto, Slate staff writer and the host of Slow Burn Season 3. And there's new decor behind Joel mm-hmm. this week. Not a life-size portrait of the fastest 10-year-old in America, but it's not a small photo either. It is a nice little Joel behind the adult Joel. Nice-size portrait of the one of the fastest 11-year-olds in the country, actually. Oh. Downgraded. The follow-up year when I was competing in an older age bracket, but still very accomplished Joel. Time inexorably marches on and Joel gets slower every year. <laughs> <laughs> Even at 11. I peaked at 10. It's fine. So we are starting, I don't know if we'll be continuing, but we're at least starting a Hang Up and Lesson Magazine Club. Our first selection we're going to talk about on next week's podcast. And I would imagine that you would want to get ahead of the game and read this story so you can enjoy the discussion. And so what we're going to be reading it's a suggestion from Chris Ballard, who we've had on the show a bunch of times. Longtime Sports Illustrated staffer just got purged from SI after 20 years by uh, new management. And so we're sad about that because we love Chris and we're sad about what's happening to Sports Illustrated. We're going to look back at an old cover story from SI from October 25th, 1965. Stefan, it's a first-person story and as told to from the Celtics, Bill Russell. Why don't you tell the people a little bit more about the story? It's a piece about Russell deconstructing the psychology of basketball, how he gets inside opponents' heads. And I haven't read it yet, and I am really excited to see how the framing of the way an athlete thought in the 1960s comports with how we've come to understand the way athletes think today. So the SI website is trash, but we will guide you. I'm going to put links to the story on our show page at slate.com slash hangup and on our Facebook page 
at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. We will hook you up. You'll be able to read that story and we'll discuss it next week. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. In a conference call over the weekend with various sports commissioners, Donald Trump said he wants teams back in action by August or September and with fans in the stands. In a public briefing, Trump declined to give a specific date, but said he thinks spectator sports will return sooner rather than later. That is almost certainly wrong. California Governor Gavin Newsom said he doesn't anticipate there being games with fans in that state as early as September. While Trump's conference call included 13 commissioners, the dates being tossed around here make it obvious that the focus is on football. Early last week, an NFL exec indicated that the league planned to start on time and have a full season. The NFL's chief medical officer then walked that back, saying they can't even begin to think about reopening for business until there's widespread, on-the-spot coronavirus testing. Joel, uh, our collective focus on the sports calendar now, and on the football calendar specifically, it makes a lot of sense if you think about the psychology of what we're going through right now. The more stuff gets canceled and postponed, the more we have to acknowledge that the world isn't normal now, and we desperately want it to be normal. And the start of football season feels far enough away as we sit here on April 6th that most of us don't want to contemplate what it would mean for us and for the world if that got pushed back too. Yeah, if we're not gearing up for football season in August, it means we're in a world that we can scarcely even imagine right now in April. And I get the instinct to hold out hope that life will resume as normal on the other side of this, whatever and that might be and whenever that might be. But um, it's worth remembering that our Surgeon General just told us, you know, after weeks of not acknowledging how bad things were, by the way, that this week is going to be the hardest and saddest for most American lives. That's really sobering. And who knows what will emerge from like this time of loss and despair. So I I go back and I think about the Yankees games after September 11th. You know, they made a 30 for 30 about that. You know, the the Saints returning to the Superdome after Katrina and, you know, the celebration that was up around that. And there's this national belief that sports can help us heal, heal all wounds. You know, that, that that is a signal that life is returning to normal here. And it makes sense. We want these distractions when they're possible at times, but that just might not be possible. And, you know, getting political about it, I mean, there's a couple of things that are clear. Trump is a bad person. I don't think he's a person who's capable of the sort of empathy that it takes to consider the collective national grief. His life is his resume in that regard. So I think that he's most concerned about the idea that if sports haven't started up by then, we're talking about a direct threat to his incumbency. Because at that point, we would have a public health crisis that would have lasted half of a year in an election year. Also, if we don't have football by August or September, that means our economy has ground to a halt. So it's not even necessarily about wanting to make Americans feel better and about having football back. It means that if we're still in this position four, five, six months from now, then we're going to be looking at a world that we've never, ever really been able to contemplate. Yeah. And... Look, the Trump episode last week, gathering all the commissioners for a conference call, I mean, the you know, 
Vince McMahon was on there from the WWE. I mean, obviously, this was the most naked political grab among a series of naked political grabs. Trump wants to try to will sports to come back. Trump believes that if sports are being played, regardless of the public health consequences, I think, it's an indication that everything's okay and you can comfortably consider voting for me because, look, I've gotten sports back. The problem in that calculation is that he's dealing with far more pragmatic and savvy and smart people than he. The NFL, as I've said on this show before, is one of the few institutions that has historically told Trump to go fuck himself. They did it in the 1980s when he thought that suing the league would force it to give him a franchise out of the old USFL. More recently, they did it when he allegedly tried to buy the Buffalo Bills. I'm willing to wager that that most of the people on that conference call hung up and rolled their eyes. They know that there's not going to be sports come August, no matter what Donald Trump or other people that we can talk about during the segment want to believe. Well, the NFL owners were willing to be led around by Trump on players kneeling and on Colin Kaepernick. And I think the key word in that sentence is willing. They blackballed Kaepernick because they wanted to. And the fact that Trump wanted them to as well was an extra nudge. But I think you're right, Stefan, that nobody's going to be led around by Trump here, not even NFL owners who donated a million dollars to his inauguration. And, you know, the thing that just popped into my head is Trump standing on the 50-yard line of the opening game of the NFL season, because you know he's going to do that and going to be raising his hands and triumph and, um, you know, using that as a commercial for his reelection. That's He's going to take credit for sports for the NFL restarting if it restarts. That's kind of what's happening right now. And the NFL is, I think, maybe the most important bellwether for us as a society. I talked on one of our first episodes about how, you know, Goodell and the NFL would figure out a way not to cancel or postpone the Super Bowl if this was happening. But no matter what, they would figure out how to make that happen. I still kind of think that that's true, but I'm less certain about um, my views on that now. And Joel, kind of the NFL's been doing some very interesting and I don't know if careful is the right word, but definitely some needle threading around the draft in particular. A lot of executives from teams are upset that the draft is on schedule for April 23rd to 25th. And Roger Goodell sent a directive saying, don't publicly complain about this. Like we're going on and this is, you know, an event that you can do virtually and with social distancing. But um, the kind of level of resolve here from Goodell and the league around the draft, it's kind of understandable and on brand, but also weird. Well, I think it's understandable, too, because as much as we want to put Trump at the center of that conference call, there's some incentive for all these league executives to meet with him because they also want sports to come back as soon as possible as well. And the draft is just a piece of that, right? Like that is a big, um, a big event in the NFL calendar. Um, It's, you know, for money reasons, personnel reasons, it signals like the shift to the next season. So there's a lot of incentive for them to have it. And I think it's a signal that we're perilously close to, placing the health of the American economy over 
the health of American citizens. Because like, even though, Stefan, you mentioned that the NFL told Trump to go fuck himself. I mean, these are still people that are built for the for the most part, the people that are invested in the NFL are billionaires. They're like rapacious capitalists and their interest is in making money even outside of the NFL. And you could totally envision a scenario in which they're like, look, we got to get this stuff started again. We've got to start going and moving again, even if it places people's lives at risk. So there's a lot of money and commerce at play here. And the process of waiting it out in this time of tremendous uncertainty is probably too onerous for billionaires who are used to getting what they want. Yeah, I, I think that's true, Joel. But I also think that the public is growing so accustomed to the reality that it's just dangerous to gather. And we can go through some of the logistics. I think there was a Wall Street Journal story the other day that laid out a lot of the the, the more nuanced complications about restarting sports. But, but back to the point about billionaires wanting to get their business going. Yeah. But again, like the, the public blowback is going to be fierce in terms of the draft, though. I think that's something that they can and should go forward with. And I don't think we need to be too cynical about the motivations. The thing it says to me is that this business, which believes that they need to like, squeeze every inch of flesh on these athletes before they decide which ones to pick is kind of a farce. You can have a draft and pick these players. These teams know enough without dragging them back to their cities for more extensive interviews and more extensive workouts before they call their names and have them go on to a stage to shake hands with the commissioner. The draft can go on. There is plenty of information and certainly the ability to do this remotely. And it is something that would, yeah, be programming for the NFL Network and for ESPN, but at the same time would allow the league to continue to function as it should, which is to prepare for the day that they restart, whether it's training camp starting in August or in October or the season being canceled. At least you have your personnel in line for whenever it starts again. I want to press you on that. You think that'll be, I mean, yes, there will be blowback from people, but there are also a lot of people in this country not that are not just football fans that also believe that a lot of this is overblown, that a lot of this is hype, yeah, even as no, we go that's through, true right? Too. I mean, maybe I'm like thinking like a rational person. I mean, certainly on every message board in America and every college football message board, we can talk about Dabo Sweeney and his behavior in the last week about restarting college football. Yeah, there are a lot of people that are going to be willing to go into a football stadium with 60 or 70,000 other people to watch a game. Yeah. And on the draft, I think the counter argument there is that maybe the, you know, these teams don't need to bring players in for interviews and poke and prod them, you know, in addition to what they do at the combine. But I think there is pressure on teams and on scouts and on players to maybe engage in risky behavior around this stuff because of what the norms are in the league. And maybe pushing things back would send a signal from the league, even if you could do the draft and you can do it and they will do it, that, you know, we're taking precautions and we don't want people out there doing, you know, workouts and we don't want there to be pressure to like meet in the draft room and and all of this stuff. It would be a signaling mechanism around how there are things that are more important, that public health and safety should take precedence over this meat market. 
Well, and the, and I wonder, Josh, your New Orleans Saints had there was a story about how they were planning to do their draft war room in an empty brewery so that they were going to gather. So maybe you're right. I mean, until there's a directive from teams that every coach, scout, front office person that's involved in picking players needs to be doing this the way we're taping this podcast on Zoom, um, we're not going to have the draft. But obviously, they've already said they're going to have the draft, and I'm not aware that the, the league has directed its employees to stay home and conduct the draft. I can't remember where I read it, but there was something about how I think it was EA Sports was asking players who are presumptive first-round picks to tell them about the style of hug that they would use with Goodell on stage. Like, you know, would it be a bear hug? Would it be just like a nice clap on the shoulder? There are just these kind of weird (laughs) moments or things that set you off and reveal the depths of the dystopian nightmare that we're living in, but simulated Goodell hugs, that just kind of did it for me, just feels a little bit too much like dystopian fiction for my taste. Are they making the first round, the presumptive first round picks uh, model their suits so that EA can do a a specific representation of what everybody's wearing? That's not dystopian. That's just fun. That's just a nice fashion show on (laughs) TikTok, like what Kyle Kuzma did. The NBA, Joel, has talked about, or there was a report from Adrian Wojnarowski about him talking about doing like a socially distanced horse tournament. And that's something that we talked about on the show a couple of weeks ago. Like, could the NBA do a horse tournament? Could they do a dunk competition? And and people would watch. And at the moment, I was like, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be a great idea. It would give us something to watch. And now it just feels like woefully inadequate to me, just like putting a teaspoon in the ocean, in the empty ocean. Like, I don't want a stupid horse tournament. Yeah, no. You know, it, although I wonder if I'm coming around on this, because just last week, on back-to-back nights, I watched Game 7 of the 2016 or 17 NBA Finals was the, when the Cavs beat the Warriors in Oakland. And then they played the 2005 Rose Bowl, Texas and USC. And I sat there and watched those games like I had not watched them before. And that was the first time I turned on ESPN, really, since all of this has started. And I was like, oh, man, I miss how this feels. I miss, you know, having something else to throw, my, you know, throw myself into. So I don't know. I just miss spending time with Lindell White. Just yeah, like, man, we know, caught up with Lindell White. Share, <laughs> share space with him. I mean, I'll, I'll take any occasion I can to spend some time with Vince Young, to be honest. But yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it, you know, I miss that. And I'm just wondering, like, how, you know, we may really be willing to accept crumbs. I mean, we talked about this. They're showing guys play video games against each other. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're setting up tournaments. Yeah, they have tournaments. So I mean, I was like, we may just accept anything there was a oh i you know just this weekend i was watching very long ig stories by nick young and gilbert arenas going back and forth on each other and i like i don't know if i would normally watch that but i'm definitely open to it now so uh, you know who knows where we'll be at the end of the month you know well maybe we'll all just become so accustomed to that that that's what we're going to prefer i mean that wall street journal piece i mentioned I got into the sort of the psychology of human behavior. You, know, you have to consider that the a soccer game in Italy is now believed to be one of the precipitating events for spreading the virus in Italy and across the continent. And the the question that the story raises is, will we be willing to go back? I said earlier that there are going to be some people that are going to be willing to go into a stadium and watch football, but the majority of the population, when some owners are talking about their fears that fans won't be um, won't be ready to go into an arena with 20,000 or 50 or 80,000 people, those are significant well, issues, Well, Stephen, not only will they be willing, will they be able to afford? 
I mean, yeah, there are beliefs that we're going to be a depression era level unemployment. That's a huge chunk of the American sports viewing public. Will they be able to engage in sports in the same way, you know, even if they want to when this is all over? Will they cancel their cable bills? Well, for our, for our entertainment purposes, watching at home, whether there's 5,000 or 20,000 or 60,000 fans in the stands, I think is pretty immaterial. Really? Like, yeah, I think so. I think the way you can mic the crowd in a particular way. And I think, you know, you're talking about crumbs. Like, you think anybody's going to complain that they're watching an NFL game and the stands are only like one fifth full? Nobody's going to care. Can I, like, Josh, can I, can I, are you a person that, that didn't watch WrestleMania? Are you not a WrestleMania fan? Well, I definitely didn't watch WrestleMania. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't watch WrestleMania twice. That's how much I didn't watch WrestleMania. Well, I mean, I saw that and there was no crowd there and it was just very weird. You could hear it all mic'd up and I'm, I don't watch WrestleMania and I watched like a few minutes of it, but just the excerpts I saw, I was like, oh, this is very weird without fans and people yelling in the background. Dude, you're talking about watching Nick Young's Instagram stories. And like, <laughs> so I think if we're watching an NFL game where the crowd is like not what we're used to, that is a compromise that Americans are going to be willing to make because the percentage of people that watch a game, a given game that are in the stands is infinitesimal. I think ultimately that doesn't matter. It all matter to the bottom lines of the leagues and the teams. But as far as our kind of mass psychology and what we're looking for is entertainment, who really cares. You honestly. don't think so? I mean, you don't see the substantive difference between SEC games on a Saturday afternoon, you know, that game in that 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 primetime block on Saturday and watching a, a Conference USA game on a Thursday when the crowd is like really bad. You could look in there and he's like, ooh, there's not any energy around this game at all. Um, I think it does make a little bit of a difference. It makes a big difference. I think it'll make a difference to the players too. LeBron talked about how much the crowd matters and how much that plays into into his desire and his ability to perform. I mean, yeah, these guys are going to do what they're told to do because their paychecks depend on it and they're professionals. But on the other hand, it will be weird and will be different. And we will question whether the evolution of these games, the way they play out is affected by the entire environment. You guys are answering a question I'm not asking. What I'm saying is we will be happy to get what we're getting and we'll be fine with it. I'm not saying it won't be worse or that it won't be different. I'm just saying we will be grateful for whatever it is that we're getting. And also, Joel, the SEC, these like big SEC games, they're going to be 90,000 people in the stands if there's like a nuclear fallout in Tuscaloosa, <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not worried about that. I mean, we should be worried about it from a public health standpoint, but like people, people don't go to the non to the Alabama Western Carolina game anyway. It's just like, will the stands be full for yeah, well, nobody watches Auburn. that game. That get, That's a game you don't see. That's not the one they put on CBS. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So maybe we should end with this question that Rachel Syme asked on Twitter that folks were talking about a lot at Slate and our Slack and it made me think. And that question, Stefan, I'll go to you first, is if you knew that this would be a year, this being all of this, ge gestures wildly around us, if you knew this would be a year, if they just came out and said it will be a year, would that change your state of mind? And you can apply that narrowly to sports or not, but just like imagine if this was a year, would that change how you're feeling and thinking right now? I feel like I've already told myself that it's going to be a year and I am processing that accordingly. So that's why you have the beard. I mean, I'm kind of like Joel a little bit. I'm all right. You know, I go for a run, 
go for a walk. I got food. I'm lucky. You know, we're fortunate. Our white collar quarantines are not terribly disruptive to the state of our lives. Psychologically, yeah, of course, it's going to be difficult. We have a job at the moment and your family is healthy at the moment. Yeah, my family is healthy at the moment. All of those things are positives. My daughter is, you know, if she doesn't go to college in the fall, she'll figure out something to do. We have no real concerns. I am, you know, psychologically, this goes on for a year. I'm more concerned with the bulk of our society and its ability to function and the millions of people that are going to be distressed in terms of housing and food and employment. Um, But so sports end up being, you know, I can live without, I'm lived for the last month without watching live sports. Another 11 is probably not going to hurt me too badly. Yeah. I think for me, sports-wise, I've kind of already come to understand that we may not see football, basketball, you know, any of the sports that I love um, again this year. Uh, More broadly, psychologically, I think I'm taking it day by day, week by week, month by month, because yeah, like I'm doing well, you know, I, I have my job for now. I'm healthy for now. Most of the people I love and care about are healthy for now. But um, man, you know, a year is a long time of your life, man. You know, I mean, I I plan to go visit my parents in March and my parents, you know, in 73, 68, live in the South, you know, in areas where the spread is getting worse. Uh, yeah, I'm really concerned about that. So, I, you know, having to live with that sort of anxiety for a year, like I I probably won't have any, any choice, but that's a really sobering thought. I don't know how I would actually do it. You'd have to take it on a case by case basis. But like, can I get by without watching, you know, the Jets plus, you know, the Jets play the Bills in October? Yeah, I'll, I'll be fine. And I know not to expect anything out of TCU football this year because we haven't done anything to address our quarterback situation. So, <laughs> I mean, I've already given up on that. A year may be helpful. Yeah, right. Saying, they give us another year to recruit, Pat. <laughs> we never to get a little bit of recruiting in there. It is weird just like, the things that remain normal or that imply a return to normalcy, like a guy just transferred from North Dakota state to LSU to play um, in the fall. And some people on the message board were like, awesome. Like it shores up our linebacking core. And other people are like, well, that guy's never going to play for (laughs) LSU. Like he's, you know, he's a grad transfer and he's just going to go to the, to the draft. Are there like places that are firing their coaches and hiring new coaches? It's just like, it it just feels like the sort of like purely transactional stuff. And I would put the draft in there too. It just feels like it's operating in a, it, it implies the existence of a world that does not exist because it's like, you know, for a long time and NBA free agency has been more popular articles, get more views than, than stuff about actual games, but it's feels dumb to have to say this, but that stuff doesn't matter if you don't actually play like how interesting are transactions if they don't actually manifest into some sort of locomotion or kinesthetic movement. All right, let's end it there. And this will be the first part of our 80 million part conversation on this uh, and related issues and months to come. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we are going to continue our conversation with Don Harper Nelson, who's the guest we are about to speak with now. Don is amazing. Uh, we love talking to her. We love talking to her at our live show. You're going to enjoy the segment here, and you'll delight in hearing from her in the bonus segment where she gets goes really deep with Joel on uh, high school track times. It is worth the subscription. If you want to hear that discussion and you're not a Slate Plus member, sign up. It's just $35 for the first year at slate.com slash hangup plus. When we last spoke at our live show here in Washington an eternity ago in December, Don Harper Nelson was mounting a comeback from retirement. The two-time Olympic medalist in the hurdles, gold in 2008, silver in 2012, had given birth to her daughter Harper the previous March, come out of retirement, and begun training for the U.S. track and field trials in June with the goal of running in the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Of course, there will be no track trials, and the Olympics have been postponed to the summer of 2021, maybe, and athletes like Harper Nelson, who circle a date on the calendar every four years, have had to recalibrate their lives. Dawn Harper Nelson joins us again, this time from her home in East St. Louis, Illinois. Hi, Dawn. Hello, hello. Thank you guys so much for having me again. First, a happy birthday coming up to Harper. I can see from social media that she's keeping you busy. She is. She is. Yes, her birthday is coming up this Friday. So we're really excited. Obviously, things are going to be different this year, you know, with type planning any type of birthday. But my family has a surprise. They're actually going to do a mini parade by our house. They're decorating their cars and everything to drive by and say hi to Harper. So that's going to be cool. Oh, that's awesome. Dawn, when we said in December that we would catch up in a few months, months, none of us could have imagined the conversation that we're about to have. So first, let's roll back the clock about a month and tell us where you were. How was training going? Were you feeling confident? Were you feeling world-class again? Yes, training was actually going really well. We um, had gotten to some type of normalcy, you know, for me to be training here in Illinois now instead of California. You know, I had my chiropractor, you know, getting my massages, training my four days that I felt, you know, really needed weight room. I mean, things were really clicking. And when it was necessary, you know, I took my days off to let the body recoup, you know, from a really tough day. But things were going well, you know, also including, you know, my daughter into the whole scheme of things of how, you know, it's Tokyo should look. And we were moving well. <laughs> it was going well before, like you said, no one could have seen this coming and everything has been recalibrated, as you said. When did you kind of start thinking that the Olympics weren't going to happen? So for me, I feel like I was later to the party of even imagining this because, you know, I was really looking at things on TV and, you know, in the beginning, you know, the president was really kind of and everyone was kind of saying, oh, it's not that bad here. And so in my world, I kind of created this bubble for myself of, look, do the things you can. My track was still available to me. Uh, The weight room was still available. I could get to the pool that I was working out in. I mean, everything was the same for me. Um, And then I started to notice that other athletes were kind of commenting on, uh, you know, they weren't able to get to tracks and things. And I remember thinking to myself, like, like, is it is it getting that bad? You know, almost like come outside of your bubble and pay attention to what's going on. And this was um, I feel like about a week, two weeks before they kind of really started with, you know, telling everyone to stay inside their homes and really practice social distancing. And once I really paid attention to what my other athletes were going through across the world, I was like, oh my, okay, we are everyone. This is really globally affecting us. And 
then, like I said, I started to pay attention to other TV stations and realize how bad it was getting. Um, but for me, what really changed was when I had a conversation with my sister and it really brought tears to my eyes because, you know, I, like I said, you get in this bubble, you have to make the best of your situation. You try not to let too many outside factors come in. And me and my husband it really created a good system for me. But when I talked to my sister, she said, you know, to actually have them postpone the Olympics would help your family tremendously because, you know, they were saying that they're probably going to have to start dipping into savings. And the money that they have put aside for Olympic trials in Tokyo, she said that they don't really have that option anymore. And they were actually starting to talk amongst the family of would they be able to go. But they didn't want to mention it to me yet because they didn't want to stress me out. And I just got teary out like, oh, my goodness. OK, Dawn, this is really about the world. This isn't about, you know what I mean, necessarily the Olympics anymore. The world is being affected and you have to pay attention to that. And I just I did. I cried to think that my family was trying to be so sweet. But then it's real. So that was really hard. So that was definitely about a week or two before they made the actual decision. So you had pretty much come to within yourself. You decided, I don't think we need to do this this year before they made the decision. Yes. And it's funny because with the athletes, the USA athletes, we had um, on our website kind of created this poll, want to do a survey of, you know, how do people feel? Should it continue? And, you know, right before I was kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like nothing for me has changed too much. I think I'll be able to be ready, you know, for June for the Olympic trials. And then, like I said, when I came out of my bubble, I realized it's not going to be a level playing field. From what I'm hearing from other athletes, they're not able to train like I'm able to train at this time. And point blank, that's not what the Olympics is about. You, They want to bring their best. You know, it has to be done the right way. And when that ring is, you know, the fire is set, everyone wants to be excited about it. And that wasn't really the case kind of anymore. And so I definitely had, was on board with, I think we need to postpone this. Um, it's, you know, because also our fans, the safety of it, for them... It, they weren't safe anymore, you know, from what our understanding and really just understanding that when I line up, the people that are cheering for me, I want them to be in their right minds. I want them to be excited about this and not saying this is outrageous that they went forward with this all for sports. And that's not I mean, I don't race for that. I just don't. And what was interesting to me is that it feels like the athletes did have some impact here, mm -hmm. um, particularly in track and swimming. The two federations that came out and said told the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee that they think they thought that the, the game should be postponed and that the U.S. should line up behind postponing the games and telling the International Olympic Committee that. That empowerment is important here because, like you said, athletes exist in their own little bubbles. And when they step out and can see the world around them, that's a sign that something was really wrong. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we were, you know, writing letters and sending emails to, you know, the CEO and the chair president of USA Track and Field to let them know we do care about the Olympics, but right now it doesn't seem to be safe or a level playing field. And we were very happy that they seemed to listen uh, rather quickly because I think we really just came together and, like you said, made our voices heard, and, you know, kind of said like, you know, we're we're not up for moving forward. It's not really a question at this point. So please don't put us in this position. And they, thank God, were totally like, we agree, we see what's going on, and they recognize it right away. What's the financial impact of losing this season and losing the Olympics? It is a tremendous impact. It is along the lines of, you know, what 
the, the conversation that I was having with my sister, you know, where you realize, okay, uh, certain speaking engagements that were moving forward, those are canceled. Track meets, okay. Earlier on, we were already advised that the meets in Shanghai that we had and Doha and Rome, two of them were canceled and other ones were trying to postpone till supposed to be in, say, early May. They were like, well, we'll try and go for June or July. But then now they're like, it's just pushing the schedule back too much. So we're going to cancel. And for us athletes, meet like literally you're like just on your calendar scratching off. OK, that money's gone. OK, April. OK, no money, April. That's fine. That's fine. You know, you told yourself, OK, April's OK. You know, I only had two or three meets. And then when May starts to get affected, you're like, wow, that looks different. But that's OK. You know, Olympic trials, you go. My dream is still, you know, there. I can do it. And then as you start to mark down the calendar, you really realize, no, I have to sit down with my family and we have to discuss financially what this year looks like because you've made the decision to already chase the dream um, for all athletes. You've made the decision to make sacrifices, even if you're a wealthy athlete you're still making sacrifices to chase this dream and then really just getting to the point where you're like, okay, I'm not making any money in track and field this year. Um, and the really the thing is you really hope that you've done well by your money because I know athletes that literally the check that was coming up in April was needed. There wasn't yeah. a question about it. I mean, even for myself, I don't have sponsors. So the track meet, the first track meet I was going to have, the money was needed. And so, I mean, you really just have to take a step back and you, it's it's almost like you just got to deal with the hand that you're dealt. And the only thing it doesn't, you realize that the world is going through this. When I'm able to have conversations with my mom and I'm talking to her and my stepfather, he's retired. So, you know, he has consistent money coming in. But then my mother's like, but her job is affecting. You just realize there's so many different sides to it all. And then in track and field, it, the one thing I will say is, as athletes, you have to be so resilient, even when you don't want to be, right? And right now, that's what we're doing. We're being like, we're just under the understanding of, okay, I'm not making any money. But when that door is opened, if someone decides, say that things get better by August, if someone decides to have a meet, I'll be ready for that. I mean, that's really all that we can do to stay sane. <laughs> How are you able to stay ready then, right? Because I did, we did see a video of you, you posted on social media, it looked like you had a feel to yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know where that was. So how are you staying ready right now then? Well, we've made the adjustment where the track that I was training has been closed, um, obviously. And it's funny, they it's a community track. So they tried their hardest to leave it open as long as they could. And they were doing a good job. You know, they had police kind of, you know, driving around and circling to kind of say, hey, too many people at the track right now. If, if five people could, you know, step off, you know, I mean, they were really trying to keep it open. Um, and there was a day where me and my husband drove by and it just was too many people. And this is before they shut it down and really kind of put the mandatory, you know, stay away six feet away from each other. And we called kind of like whoever was over the track. My husband made the call, but to let them know, hey, it doesn't look safe out there. People seem like they're just really kind of putting aside what they, you know, wanted to be outside and kind of be active. And the police came out, you know, and kind of had to say, hey, everybody, you know, you got to do right. And so what we decided to do was the track just seemed a little too iffy at the time. So there is this beautiful park um, by me and there's just open field. And I 
truly appreciate my community right now because it seems like everyone is really abiding by the rules. You see people drive by the park and you can tell they're kind of like, okay, how many people, what's going on? And I feel like I've seen people just drive, no, too many people today, you know, or, and they've said even on certain fields, they don't want more than 10 people on each soccer field. And so I've been able to go to the park that's by me and it's a beautiful flat. I mean, the surface is, it's stretched out. I get a good solid 400 meters in. Me and my husband have already marked it off. So I really made my adjustments to practicing on that. And the good thing is it actually in long term can be very beneficial because the track surface can be pretty hard. And so, you know, just being able to go back to longer runs, being on the softer surface, I mean, is going to be helpful. Wait, so, so you're running sprints on grass? Absolutely. Let's go for it. Yep. And so the thing is, is if you notice for Jamaican sprinters, this is something maybe a lot of people don't know. They do the majority of their training um, in grass and on fields. And so they, I've talked to a number of them that say by the time they get to the track uh, for a track meet, this is maybe their second or third time that they put on spikes and actually hit a track. And so a lot of us have had, just had to adapt that mindset um, and that type of training. So I have my own hurdles, collapsible hurdles that I bring out to the park. And so I put them up. I have my own blocks. My husband have to stand on them and we just get it in. Wow. Wait a minute, though. So why haven't American sprinters done that? I mean, obviously, the Jamaicans for a while were running things in sprints, right? So like, why why do you think that not did not take off here domestically then? Well, for a part of it, we have, I know a lot of us do our fall training there. So from about... November until December, November, December, a little bit of January, we'll do a lot of that. We will be on the fields and kind of grass to protect shins, knees, ankles, you know, all of that backs. But then we, I feel like there's this sense of when it's time to go, we need to hit the track. I need to see those lines running between those lines because then I know exactly the effort that I put in. I know exactly what I'm getting out of it. There isn't a, ooh, on grass, you know, it's going well here, but when I'm on the track, it's going to be, no, I need to know when that gun goes off at a track meet at practice, I did it. And it was on a track like this and it was between these hundred meter lines. I need to know that feeling. So I think a little bit of that, you know, for us. So Don, you came back after having your daughter, as we've discussed. And I'm wondering if this kind of forced hiatus has made it clear to you what your motivation is, because I think it would have been easy to say it's for another Olympics. It's, you know, to prove that you could do it after having a kid and at this age. But this, you know, the fact that you're out there practicing in a park with your collapsible <laughs> hurdles, it says a lot about your love for the sport and what you do and that it's not about a gold medal or an Olympics, right? You said it perfectly. Um, it's for my lo the love of track and field and it's for the love of the hurdles. When they made the decision, it was final. I remember just being on an emotional roller coaster because I think it was first a Sunday that it came out where, oh, it's going to be postponed. But they said, oh, wait, that was released too soon. No, not yet. But then a Monday, which was actually my anniversary, March 23rd was like, oh, this is the actual decision. And so my emotions were just all over the place. And I told my husband, I said, I want to sit down. And I need to have a conversation with you because I know what I would like to do, but I need to know that within my household and in my family, that we are genuinely happy and okay to move forward. You're not just like, well, this is her dream. So let me support it. And my husband said, he's like, Dawn, I know you and I see you and you're at peace. Like you're 
totally happy when you're out there running over your collapsible hurdles, you know, or when we drive up to the track and we have to make an adjustment of like, no, we're not working out here. I'm like, well, where are we working out today? You know, it's, it's a, we're, we're getting it done. Even if I have to go and hit the pavement for today and just ice my knees later, what it allowed me to do was take the immediate pressure off myself to then say, once again, I really do love this because I'm sad that the Olympics has to be postponed. I'm nervous that at one point they were mentioning canceling it. It really just made me think that I'm really blessed to be healthy enough to still chase this dream, to still at night, wake up in the middle of the night and write down notes of, okay, no, I need to do this at practice. No, I need to do that. Oh, I can't wait. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Like I still have that feeling. And so that's exactly what it did for me. It allowed me to continue to realize like I love running. I love pushing the body, my body and saying, like, girl, you did that again. You are just, you are an amazing individual. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it. It's something about it. At the same time, you must have also thought, hey, I'm 35 now. I'm going to be 36 in a month. I'm going to be 37 when the 2021 Olympics okay. roll around. <laughs> yes. How have you sort of thought through your own age and ability and willingness to go through what it takes for another year? So uh, I did have a moment, to be honest, where I got sad because the initial plan was to train for 2020. We're going to go ooh at the Olympics, woo woo, winning my gold medal. Oh, my goodness. This is so amazing. I can't <laughs> believe it happened. And then my husband wanted to have another child after the Olympics. And so I had this thought of this is another year that you're putting off having a child for track and field. Is this the right decision? Are you going to be okay with this after another year? You're not going to say, oh my goodness, what, you know, what have I done? So I got sad because I thought of, it's just so much on the line. Like, oh my gosh, this is, what if it all goes wrong? What if it's all in vain? But then I'm like, as long as you feel happy and your family is still, like my husband is okay. He lays his head down at night also happy. Like, I'm okay with my wife doing this. I'm okay with, you know, quote unquote, our family plans being put on hold. I told myself that you really can only go for what you, I mean, you, you can only make the decisions that you're happy with right now. You can't sell the future. Be honest with yourself though. Like, don't lie about, you know, you know, I'm going for 2020 and, you know, you're like, this is, you're kind of tripping because you're getting older. And I'm like, no, my body feels great. Um, you know, I've talked with my doctors, you know, OBGYN, and she's like, Dawn, your body's functioning, baby. Go for it. You look great. So, you know, really just kind of with that. And I told myself, I'm like, I'm happy, though. I'm happy with this decision. And we're going for 2021. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that 36 now, 37, like, how do you sort of mentally deal with the nagging thoughts that I would have? about my own decline. <laughs> like, oh man, does another year mean two-tenths of a second or three-tenths of a second? How do I overcome that? Well, see, that's the beauty about, I think, track and field, the hurdles, and the way that I've paid attention to my body over the years. I have definitely been a student of what I need to be my best. And so as long as I feel like I can still do those things and get up out of bed <laughs> and not have my back aching or knees aching, you know, I would move forward because, you know, I mean, I've had knee surgeries and I think 
Now it has been a huge benefit that I've had those injuries and surgeries in the past because it forced me to pay attention to my body. If I maybe would have never really dealt with anything major, you know, then who knows? I maybe now would even be, you know, at the point where I'm just like, I don't know what makes my body tick. I just know that I've always kind of done this program. It's worked for me. I've never had to step away from the track, you know, but I've had times where, I mean, 2008, I had knee surgery February 29th. And then I went on to, you know, win the Olympics. 2010, I had knee surgery again. And I've had to pay attention to, I mean, from the soles of my feet to the top of my head. So right now, I've had to take some more days off than I normally would. So let's be honest, 35 does feel different than 25. But I think that it has allowed me to be able to continue to push the envelope like I know is needed to be on top of a podium. And then I do, I have to have honest conversations, you know, with my husband. I say, what do I look like? Like I feel, and I know the numbers say, you know, I'm running well, but do I look like I'm all out? Like, you know, do I look like I'm struggling for this time? And, you know, and he's honest. He's like, no, we do need more work here. But he's like, I know you and your body and you look very comfortable in that run. And, you know, we do need to add this here, take away that there. You have today off. I don't care how you feel. Go sit down, go play with Harper. And so, you know, we've just been able to tweak certain things. And to be honest with myself, once again, at the age of 35, about to be 36. But I will say there have been runners, Gail Devers, she did it. She had two babies, okay, and kept coming back. Now, we wanted her to retire. I was at home like, Lord, if you love me, let this woman retire. She is so good. And she was, I mean, 36, 37 killing it. So, and she said she had to be honest and say, I'm used to training, say five days. Maybe I'm going to train three because my body needs more recovery. And so that's pretty much, you know, just where I am. Don Harper Nelson is a two-time Olympian in the hurdles and we hope three-time she's going to go for it in 2021. Don, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Anytime guys. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when you did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for After Balls, and this week we're going to honor Tom Dempsey, who died on Saturday at 73, of complications from the coronavirus. Dempsey was being treated for dementia at the assisted living facility Lambeth House in New Orleans, which has been the site of a major coronavirus outbreak in the city. His New York Times obituary says that at 6 feet 2 inches and 255 pounds, Dempsey relished running downfield to deliver hits to cover his kickoffs, and had sustained several concussions, his family told the Times in 2013. Dempsey was born without toes on his right foot, and he's famous for kicking a record-setting, game-winning 63-yard field goal for the Saints on November 8, 1970. 
This was back in the day when the goalposts were at the front of the end zone. So the line of scrimmage was the Saints' 45-yard line, 55 yards from the opposing goal line, plus another eight yards back for the holder. Here is what the kick sounded like. Not only will uh, if Tom Dempsey hits this one, he's got a very slight win at his back, he'll set a National Football League record in addition to winning the game. I don't believe this. It's good! I don't believe it! The field goal attempt was good from 63 yards away! Dempsey wore a special shoe with a flattened leather-reinforced surface. Those shoes, the Times-Picayune reported in back in 1970, were custom-made in San Diego and each cost $200. Don't worry, the Saints paid for them. A couple other things I learned from reading the Picayune's game story. Jackie Burkett snapped the ball to the holder, Joe Scarpatti. The Lions had taken the lead 17-16 with 11 seconds to go on an 18-yard field goal. I had thought, that's the shortest possible kick, but if the Goalposts are at the front of the end zone, Stefan. Back then, you could kick an eight-yard field goal. Could that possibly be true? Theoretically, yeah, hard, hard to get over the line, but yeah. Anyway, 18 yards, pretty short. Dempsey's field goal broke a 17-year record held by, maybe you can help me with the pronunciation here, Stefan. Bert Reshashar. Thank you. He kicked a 56-yarder in 1953. Dempsey's kick was 12.5% longer. So the current record, 64 yards, Matt Prater, to beat that by 12.5%, someone would have to kick a 72-yard field goal. So that just gives you a sense of how much Dempsey was out kicking the record books. Uh, the Pickians' Bob Rostler referred to Dempsey's kick as the miracle on Willow Street. That was the location of the Saints uh, Stadium back then, the old two-lane stadium, which no longer exists. Lions linebacker Wayne Walker also reportedly said after the game, Dempsey didn't kick that football. God did. I don't know about that, but... Looked like Dempsey kicked it to me. I just watched the video. I think so. Dempsey made 18 of 34 attempts that year. He was cut by the Saints before the 1971 season. That's the NFL for you. I am not sure if the Saints kept all of the $200 shoes since they had paid for them. Um, But I will say, rest in peace, Tom Dempsey. Joel, what is your Dempsey? My Dempsey is Bobby Bowden. Former Florida State University head football coach Bobby Bowden is 90 years old. He lives with his wife of 71 years in the same home he's lived in for 44 years. The winningest coach in major college football history has been retired for a decade now. And in most stories you've read about Coach Bowden in that time, there's likely been mentioned that he A, goes to bed around 8 p.m., B, wakes up around 4 a.m., C, reads the Bible and newspaper with a cup of coffee every morning. Then Bowden might answer emails, he might go on a nice walk and hit golf balls at the country club behind his home, and he will almost certainly go to dinner with his wife Anne around 4 p.m. It's totally in keeping with the performative country bumpkinness Bowden was able to hone over the 55 years that he was a coach. It was a useful caricature, even as he was architect of one of the best and most ruthless programs in college football history. If it wasn't already obvious, Coach Bowden's is a life of routine and comfort. Or like so many others, it was until recently. In an interview last week with the Tallahassee Democrat, Coach Bowden said the coronavirus pandemic has made him as worried as he's ever been. He told the Democrat, quote, I don't think there is a man or a woman in the United States of America that could envision something like this happening. An invisible germ. If it was visible, maybe we could handle it. We can't even see the darn thing. And then we knew nothing about it. No history on it. 
No background on it. I'm really concerned about this. That's why I'm staying home. If that particular appraisal of coronavirus sounds familiar, it's because it is. It sounds just like something President Trump would say at one of his daily press conferences. No one could have seen this happen. It's invisible. We knew nothing. It's the everyday refrain of ignorance coming from the most powerful pulpit in the country. And you know what? Bobby Bowden helped her empower it. Let's go back to Tampa in October 2016. Coach Bowden showed up to a Trump campaign rally in an American flag tie and came on stage to the Seminoles war chant and the tomahawk chop. Here's a clip. I love I love his slogan. When I when, when he first said that he was going to run for president, I loved what he said about making America great again. Bowden also told the crowd we have got to win this doggone thing. And they did. Emphasis on they. Trump won Florida with 49% of the vote, a pivotal electoral victory in the nation's biggest swing state. Bowden showed up for Trump in MAGA again in 2018. He spoke at a rally in Pensacola meant to support the candidacies of Ron DeSantis for governor and Rick Scott for senator. Trump plus God is a majority, Bowden said. Bowden, once again, picked a couple of winners. DeSantis and Scott prevailed. Bowden got exactly what he campaigned for. Consider that Governor DeSantis has taken his cues from Florida's coronavirus response directly from Trump. It wasn't until last Wednesday that DeSantis issued a shelter-in-place order for the state. That's something that health officials, scientists, and political opponents have been pleading with him to sign for more than two weeks. In that time, Florida became one of the nation's hotspots for COVID-19. By most measures, Florida has one of the nation's fastest rates of growth in cases and deaths. So in recent days, Coach Bowden, someone who at 90 is squarely within the category of those most at risk in the midst of this pandemic, is holed up at his home. He said this national moment reminded him of his bout with rheumatic fever in 1943 when he was 13. That illness kept Bowden bedridden for a year and prevented him from playing football for another two. It was football that gave him the life he has today, taking him from a sickly teenager in Alabama to a wealthy legend of the game. He's got everything he's ever wanted, and he's still home scared. And I just kind of want to ask Coach Bowden, does this feel like winning? Is America great again? Damn, that was good. Thank you, Joel. That was really good. Stefan, what's your Tom Dempsey? I was heartbroken last week when Adam Schlesinger died at age 52 of complications from the coronavirus. Schlesinger was the songwriter, bassist, and backup singer for the power pop group Fountains of Wayne, and much more. He wrote for Broadway. He wrote for movies, an Oscar nomination for That Thing You Do. He wrote for a Stephen Colbert special. He wrote and collaborated on scores of songs for the musical comedy show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. There was one seminal sports song on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Sports Analogies, a black and white Rat Pack number in which two of the main characters, Josh and Nathaniel, swap sports cliches. When we're on the ropes and it's our turn at bat, we gotta throw a Hail Mary, gotta go to the mat. Sports Analogies, Sports Analogies, we found the common ground in all men's personalities. We talk a big game, that's how we relate. It's the easiest way for men to communicate hike 
I talked to Jack Dolgen, who co-wrote the song with Schlesinger. He said they wrote it in a day. They traded cliches, made them rhyme. The flow didn't have to make sense because the point was sports bringing together two guys who have nothing in common. The song even has a sad bridge that Schlesinger wrote about how men use sports to substitute for real relationships with their fathers. Dolgen said that Schlesinger was not a sports guy. He was very much the adult of band kid who was like, sports are lame, I'm into the Beatles. But Fountains of Wayne had a seminal sports song, too, All Kinds of Time, from the 2003 album Welcome Interstate Managers, which is making a lot of playlists in the aftermath of Schlesinger's death. For Fountains of Wayne, Schlesinger and his college friend Chris Collingwood shared songwriting credit. But Schlesinger's were the songs that told stories, funny, desperate, poignant vignettes about aimless Gen X white dudes getting tattoos and buying shitty cars, high school prom and unrequited love, the grim realities of adulthood. Songs that displayed, Carl Wilson wrote in Slate last week, dry, rueful compassion for the dead ends of American life. Schlesinger's narrative songs could be sweet and thoughtful, too. That's the case with All Kinds of Time. It takes place during a football game. Schlesinger sets the scene in the opening lines. The clock's running down, the team's losing ground to the opposing defense. The young quarterback waits for the snap. And then comes the chorus. He's got all kinds of time. He's got all kinds of time. All kinds of time. The song is literally about a quarterback in the pocket calmly and confidently surveying the field, the game finally coming together. But it's really about those brief, fleeting, cinematic moments of balance and contentment, of being in life's zone. Schlesinger's quarterback is under attack, but he thinks about his family watching him on TV. He knows no one can touch him now. In a piece about songwriting and storytelling that he wrote for the New York Times in 2013, Schlesinger said he thought of the football announcer cliche and then that it would be fun to take it literally and see if I could write a song in which time actually seems to slow down during one tiny moment in a football game. Schlesinger said it was sort of a hokey idea on paper, but then he remembered the Paul Simon song Night Game, which he wrote, is not really about sports at all, and I strove for a bit of that feeling. There were two The score was tied in the bottom of the eighth when the pitcher died. Simon was going for inevitable death, Schlesinger for ineffable calm. He said he wrote the lyrics to All Kinds of Time first and then tried to set it to music that implied slow motion. Obviously, it worked beautifully. The NFL wound up licensing All Kinds of Time for a promo for the NFL Network, a quick-cut montage of quarterbacks in slow motion. I paused the minute-long video dozens of times and can report that the featured quarterbacks are, in order of appearance, and I think I got it right, 
Dan Pastorini, Fran Tarkenton, John Unitas, Terry Bradshaw, Archie Manning with Peyton and Eli as kids, Peyton Manning, Eli Manning as quarterbacks, Bart Starr, Len Dawson, Troy Aikman's eyes, John Elway, Doug Williams, Dan Fouts, Donovan McNabb, Dan Marino, Mike Vick, Y.A. Tittle, Tom Brady, Joe Montana throwing the catch, Phil Simms, Steve Young, a full Troy Aikman, Ken Stabler, Bart Starr again, Bob Greasy's head, Jim Zorn, Jim McMahon, Joe Theismann, Byron Leftwich, Jim Kelly, Dante Culpepper, Jake DeLome. This was made in the mid-2000s, which explains Leftwich, Culpepper, DeLome. Greg Landry, Bernie Kosar, Ken O'Brien, Steve McNair, Roman Gabriel, Ben Roethlisberger, Jim Hart, Roger Staubach, Brett Favre, Len Dawson getting carried off the field after winning Super Bowl IV, and to close it out, of course, Joe Namath wagging an index finger after winning Super Bowl III. It's a terrific promo. People have since copied it, of course, setting all kinds of time to highlights of Eli Manning thwarting the Patriots' perfect season in the Super Bowl in 2008, the Steelers beating the Cardinals in the Super Bowl in 2009, and a Madden NFL game between the Titans and Cowboys starring Vince Young. In that New York Times piece, Schlesinger said that he could not have been happier about the way the NFL used all kinds of time because it confirmed that his idea must have come across. The rare moment when life moves in slow motion, the out-of-body sensation of recognizing it and soaking it in, the world briefly pausing to make perfect sense. Thanks for the music, Adam Schlesinger. Rest in peace. Josh, what's your Tom Dempsey? As we reel desperately a nation without entertainment, I think back to 2007 when 43-year-old Charles Barkley raced 67-year-old NBA referee Dick Bavetta on the Saturday night of NBA's All-Star Weekend. That sounds great right about now, but what was their excuse back then? America circa 13 years ago was overflowing with leisure time options. You could do literally anything and put it on television for everyone to watch. You could be five feet apart. You could be five inches apart. It was unreal, truly. But anyway, uh, Charles Barkley won that race. He actually backpedaled across the finish line, and $75,000 got donated to the Boys and Girls Clubs of Las Vegas. I bring this up. I'm not actually sure why I bring it up. It's a strange time, and things like narrative coherence no longer exist. But there actually, no, there is a reason. I recently came across a squib about another race, this one in April 1948, and here's how it was written up in the New York Times, Dateline, Orlando, Florida. The, quote, race between baseball's, quote, grand old men is scheduled here tomorrow. The participants, Connie Mack, 85-year-old owner-manager of the Philadelphia Athletics, and Clark Griffith, 78-year-old owner of the Washington Senators. The distance from third base to home plate in Orlando's baseball park the time coincident with a Sunday exhibition baseball game here between Max Athletics and Griffith's Senators. One question you might have is, why was an 85-year-old dude racing a 78-year-old dude? A piece in the Miami News explained that Mac and Griffith had long debated which of the two could run the fastest from third base to home. Mac, real name Cornelius McGillicuddy, and Griffith, nicknamed the Old Fox, had bo- they'd played together as far back uh, in the National League as 1893. So it's possible that as of uh, 1948, they would have been debating this for 55 years. So it was about time. Uh, the more likely explanation provided in that time story is that the possibility of watching extremely old people run would draw more paying customers to an exhibition game that had an expected attendance of only 1,000 people. 
to the race. Mac and Griffith arrived in an ambulance. Showmanship. Gotta love it. That ambulance also carried a doctor and two nurses. The commissioner of baseball, Happy Chandler, was the referee. Noted baseball comedian Nick Altrock fired a cap pistol to start the proceedings. Uh, Here's how the Boston Globe wrote it up. You're all just desperately in suspense right now. Mack and Griffith crouched on the third base starting line with hardly a creak that could be heard in the cheering stands. The pistol cracked. Both men broke fast and ran neck and neck for 10 paces. Saving ground, the two wary field veterans slowed the pace to a walk, visibly tiring, but remaining abreast. At the three quarters mark, the crafty Mack broke the deadlock with a blistering stretch drive that surprised his opponent. The game Griffith called on his reserve strength and his second wind. Three feet from the finish line, Griffith caught Mack and they strode over together. Baseball High Commissioner A.B. Happy Chandler, who judged the race, pondered his decision only momentarily. He congratulated both puffing athletes and raised their arms in the victory salute. The official time for the race was 34 and 5 tenths seconds, probably a little short of the world's record, which was not immediately available. Uh, Joel is making the appropriate face when uh, read that the time was read. By coincidence, the 100-meter world record for men age 105 or older is 34 and a half seconds. To be clear, Mack and Griffith were running about 27 meters, not 100 meters. So do the math and their time for 100 meters is about two minutes and five seconds. <laughs> for a mile, we're looking at 33 minutes and 44 seconds. For a marathon, 14 hours, 43 minutes and 49 seconds, slower than Oprah's time. In photos taken of the race, Mack and Griffith are both wearing suits which you'd have to imagine slowed them down, so give them a couple extra seconds. It's also worth noting that these guys weren't just slow on the base paths. A year later, Alvin White wrote a column in the Baltimore Afro-American arguing that the sooner Griffith and Mack were off the scene, the better the prospects for colored ballplayers. Griffith's senators and Mack's A's signed no black players, ever, and White wrote that both men were playing out their strings hard-headedly and stubbornly as other ball clubs began to behave less racistly. Neither man would make it that much longer. Griffith died in 1955 at the age of 85. Mack in 1956 at the age of 93. Uh, All right, so let's figure that in 1948, they didn't stop running after 90 feet. Also that they never rested and never died. So they've kept going for 72 years at this pace. How long would they have traveled at that pace of 90 feet in 34 and a half seconds? By my calculations, they would have gone 5,924,347,826 feet. That's about 1,122,036 miles, which is around 45 trips around the Earth at the equator. I think there's an important lesson here for all of us, which is that calculators still work no matter how dumb the problem you're trying to solve. (laughs) Also, we really need to get back to sports soon because I have some time on my hands. That is our show for today. Wait, wait, wait. What? I want to offer one little bit of counter-programming here in defense of the olds. Go watch the video of Luke Appling at age 75 hitting a home run off of Warren Spahn in an old-timers game in 1982. 
in one sense, you're defending the old. In the other sense, you're like allowing us to make mirth of the fact that old man Warren Spahn gave up a home run. You're mocking the old, Stefan. No, no, you can never, never, never blame the pitcher. It was just a clean swing by Luke Appling. It did take him about, you know, 75 seconds to circle the bases in Griffith fashion. Yeah. Respect. Respect our elders. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. Listen to past shows. Subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And remember, we're going to do our magazine club next week, the Bill Russell story from Sports Illustrated in 1965. If you want to link to that story to read it along with us, go to slate.com slash hangup or to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash hangup and listen. If you are still here, you might want even more hang up and listen. Bonus segment this week is a fun one. We talked with Don Harper Nelson, our guest, about her high school track career. I did obviously 100 hurdles, 300 hurdles. The two, my freshman year, I did to 200, 4x1, 4x4. Um, I made it to all those events in, at the state meet. And I remember in the sprints, I ended up getting like fifth. And I beat the senior on our team. That was amazing. So that's my claim to fame. Not the hurdles, break the state records. That's nice. But my freshman year in the 200s. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.